So this is a conversation with Zakaria Zelalem. He's an Ethiopian journalist with Adi Standard as well as a freelance journalist focusing on the Horn of Africa region. More recently, Zelalem has also been investigating widespread abuses of Ethiopian migrant domestic workers in the Middle East and in particular in Lebanon. This is why I wanted to have this conversation with him. The conversation around the abusive kafala system in Lebanon rarely includes the stories of the people who leave their homes to go work in a stranger's house in another country. This episode is the third on the kafala system in Lebanon, focusing on Ethiopian migrant domestic workers, who constitute the majority of those working in the country. Migrant domestic workers are, alongside the rest of the labor force, the primary force keeping Lebanon running in the first place. And yet, despite their central role, they are regularly ignored alongside the widespread abuses affecting them. In a previous episode, I spoke with Banshi Yimir, founder of Enya Lenya, who defined themselves as a community-based feminist activist working on migrant domestic workers' issues and gender women's issues in Lebanon and Ethiopia. And in the earlier episode, I spoke with Sami, a Beirut-based Ethiopian activist with Misawat, a solidarity network that supports migrant workers in Lebanon and the Middle East, as well as Ali, an activist with the anti-racism movement. You can find these episodes on your podcast app or on the website. They are at number two and five. As usual, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at FireThesetimes and on Instagram at TheFireThesetimes. And if you like what I do, please consider supporting this project with either a monthly or a one-off donation on Patreon, BuyMeCoffee.com or PayPal. The relevant links are in the description. Thank you for your time. I'm an Ethiopian journalist with Ethiopian uh, magazine Adi Standard, and I also write. Uh, I also freelance for a variety of other um, Horn of Africa centric portals, and my focus is on the Horn of Africa and on domestic workers and their plight in the Middle East. Thanks a lot for taking the time to talk to me about this. Um... Hopefully listeners would have listened to the previous two episodes that I, I published on the podcast. If not, uh, I'll just link it on the blog post as usual and they can find it on the website. But the reason why I wanted to talk to you especially is because you happen to be well an Ethiopian journalist who is researching, who has done a very good investigative work on uh, what's been happening from an angle that I feel most Lebanese even those who are like well-meaning uh, generally just simply do not get because uh, our media back home for various reasons and there's there's actually a podcast episode on that as well uh, tends to be pretty bad. So if you don't mind uh, giving us some kind of background into uh, the Ethiopians who actually go to Lebanon, you can talk about the Middle East in general if you want, but uh, the focus would be on Lebanon in my case. Uh, yeah, so give us a bit of background into um, why in the first place uh, so many Ethiopians go to Lebanon. Uh, what are some characteristics maybe like, you know, socioeconomic background, urban, rural, whatever, that kind of stuff. Sure. So um, in terms of the demographic of Ethiopians uh, who migrate to the Middle East, uh, Lebanon, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, it's pretty much, uh, it's pretty similar. Uh, they, they tend to be uh, women from uh, rural upbringings. And uh, they tend to be in the on the lower half 
of the food chain in terms of uh, income. They tend to come from uh, poorer families. Uh, this is, in, t in terms of Lebanon, Ethiopians have been, Ethiopian women have been migrating to work as domestic workers in Lebanon for much of the past 25 years. But uh, it, things saw an uptick, uh, especially starting uh, from 2010 when Ethiopia went through a series of um, uh, economic downturns. Maybe not as drastic as uh, what we've seen in Lebanon, but we saw the value of Ethiopian currency, the bir, go down by something like half starting from 2010, soaring of uh, inflation rates and the skyrocketing of living costs. These made uh, uh, living uh, life in Ethiopia uh, considerably more difficult for what was formerly the Ethiopian middle class, because now we, we saw what has since become the, uh, the very vast gap between the rich and the poor in the country. So most of the Ethiopians who do migrate to, to Lebanon tend to be, um, tend to be those from uh, farming backgrounds, those who have struggled to adjust to, uh, those whose families have struggled to adjust to life post-2010. And uh, it also, they also uh, migrate in large numbers uh, due to, uh, in some, some ways, a lack of awareness of uh, what awaits them in Lebanon, something that uh, many of us have focused, uh, have focused our, our work on. And uh, it will continue this way because uh, Ethiopia st has still uh, failed to um, address the job creation uh, woes that it has found itself in for much of the past uh, 10, 15 years or so. Mm. So for those who don't know, there is this thing called the kafala system. The kafala system, um, I'll just give a brief summary, essentially means that in the case of Lebanon, and it's it's very similar elsewhere where it's applied to to different extent, um, migrant domestic workers, so let's say the Ethiopian women who uh, go to Lebanon, their legal status in Lebanon is dependent upon uh, basically the whims of their kafir, their sponsors. Uh, what this translates into, according to many uh, migrant domestic workers themselves, including Banshi Yimmer, who I've interviewed previously on this podcast, is essentially a state of de facto slavery. It's a matter of whether you're lucky, essentially, to be put in a family where uh, that family is nice and decides to treat you well, or you're unlucky and horrible things uh, follow. Can you give, uh, speaking of these horrible things, uh, unfortunately, can you give some kind of summary or actually just uh, talk for, uh, speak for as long as you want uh, of your investigations into the kafala system in Lebanon and how the both the Lebanese and Ethiopian governments, and you, you could probably focus on the Ethiopian as well, because I feel like most of our listeners would not know this, uh, have been reacting to reports of widespread abuse coming from journalists and human rights organizations. Uh, and if you don't mind, also mention um, your interactions with the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Middle Eastern Envoy. Sure. So, um, yes, uh, the kafala system has been... Uh has been uh, sort of the problem child of uh, Ethiopian society for something like two decades now. Um, I feel we've normalized it to the extent that uh, it does not provoke the same sort of uh, fury that it, may, it might have 10, 15 years ago. And this is why um, this and also the fact that Ethiopia lacks something of a media culture is one of the reasons why not only in Lebanon, but even in Ethiopia, to some extent, 
the wo- the plight of uh, domestic workers was sort of shoved under the rug for a long time, and that's why I really wanted to uh, take I wanted to take a greater look and investigate uh, some of the shortcomings in terms of uh, institutional measures to protect their dignity, and just uh, and just what ex- I wanted to learn what exactly was it that led to such ghastly numbers of uh, deaths injuries, uh, rapes, suicides, etc. So starting from uh, early 2019, I started uh, investigating the deaths. I, I looked into three deaths primarily, uh, the, the, the deaths of three Ethiopian domestic workers, all of whom had died between uh, January and May of, of 2019. And I found a common pattern uh, that linked all three of them. So. The three deaths, um, the, the victims, uh, they are Tegist Balai, Murut Alai, and Desta uh, Tafese. So they all lived in different parts of Lebanon. They all died in um, considerably suspicious uh, circumstances. All three of the deaths pointed to some sort of uh, wrongdoing or foul play uh, involving their employers. And in all three cases, the Ethiopian consulate just... Uh, facilitated the transport of the remains of the victims to Ethiopia and uh, were and did very little else i mean they there i was able to obtain the police reports which which would show that typically after the death of an Ethiopian domestic worker in Lebanon a representative from the consulate or the Ethiopian government uh they might go as far as um, as a meeting with police officers involved in the case uh, maybe even communicating with the employer and uh, doing little else. So the death, the, the, the remains, the human remains would be sent to Ethiopia for burial and you would hear little else. So it's almost like uh, me in, in, uh, as in the, the first part of my investigation, I, I decided to name it the Ethiopian Lebanese Corpse Disposal Inc. Because uh, after looking at it, after recognizing the pattern, uh, it just seemed like an operation, just someone dies and then a sort of uh, cycle, a sort of um, well-oiled machine, if you will, that uh, works to quickly dispose of the body, uh, go through whatever bureaucratic process is needed uh, to uh, amend things with Lebanese authorities or the police, and then uh, they're back to their desk jobs. So this would go on and on, and the more I looked at it, I... You know, it's very easy to see why uh, the, 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 the statistics, the death statistics, the, the tallies of deaths amongst Ethiopians was skyrocketing because there was literally nothing being done to, um, to prevent this. Nothing uh, on, this, on, the Ethiopian, on behalf of Ethiopian authorities to demand any sort of accountability, to demand any sort of uh, answers or to get some sort of closure for most of the families. I went as far as visiting the families in the, in their homes in Ethiopia and they all told me that besides receiving a, the phone call one day being told that their daughters had, had died, they had received no other communications or no other information from anybody in Ethiopian government uh, with regards to the death of their loved ones. So they're... So as I mentioned uh, earlier, these families come from rural backgrounds and a lot of them are poor and unable to uh, afford a lawyer. So 
these are the last people you would expect to uh, to pursue justice as many of them are unaware of what their rights are and many of them uh, don't have the means to do anything beyond uh, uh, visiting the the foreign ministry and asking in vain for some sort of answer and they don't even get that and uh, another thing is that this they are so these families are so vulnerable and uh, they are deemed in the eyes of the Ethiopian government as meek and voiceless that another disturbing trend that I've that I've uh, that I've been able to uh, tr tr track in the past few months or so is that even after death a lot of these uh, a lot of these families um, aren't don't receive the insurance money that they are entitled to because once you when Ethiopians go to work as uh, domestic workers uh, in Lebanon e even under the kafala system um, Lebanese employers have to uh, pay for uh, medical health insurance so in the case of death or injury uh, there is a sum of money that's delivered to the family uh, this fa even the, even this money it disappears without a trace so this was what was happening when Ethiopian media and Ethiopian society as a whole sort of normalized uh, the plight of these women and uh, systematically turned a blind eye of sorts to their plight so the longer this went I mean, I would say, I mean, maybe this is a little bit uh, less objective. I would say that consul, at least Ethiopian consulate staff members felt more emboldened to to engage in a variety of practices, including uh, the theft of. Uh, I might as well announce it now. I have a report coming out in the next uh, few days, few weeks, on uh, how Ethiopian diplomats managed to rob Ethiopian domestic workers of uh, and the Ethiopian community in Lebanon of their hard-earned uh, money. Uh, that will come out in a few days. So this is what happens when Ethiopian society as a whole turns a blind eye to the suffering of so many of their own women in the Middle East. And uh, that's what I that's what I was able to notice. So the longer this the longer this went, uh, the, the worse some of the uh, practices uh, got. That's what I was able to uncover. So after about uh, two or three reports into this, and uh, after, th after the uh, involvement of uh, many of our Lebanese allies, including uh, a mutual friend of ours, Timur Azhari, and his uh, reporting, and of course the, the efforts of the one and only Joey Ayou, <laughs> a lot of, uh, a lot of um, the international uh, media outlets and activists started to take uh, greater notice and uh, these stories that were once talked about uh, only maybe in, uh, in the homes of these employers started to make the headlines. So when this happened, and when the Ethiopian government came under increasing pressure to uh, address the issue because of the ample negative press, I believe it was in October, yeah, October of 2019, that the government... Uh, the foreign ministry announced that it would send a fact-finding delegation to Lebanon to meet with the community and to attempt to address their problems. So initially, um, for someone like me who had just gotten into uh, investigating the, this issue, it seemed somewhat promising that uh, a mere five, six months after the first of my reports was published for Adi Standard, uh, the Ethiopian government appeared to be willing to take notice and 
seemingly at least uh, on paper appeared willing to uh, do what it could to uh, reverse the situation. Something else that must be noted is that Ethiopia had uh, the same administration, the same ruling party and government for the past 27 years up till 2018. So uh, the common view was that this new administration, the new uh, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed run administration, the post-2018 administration might see things in a different light, might uh, take a different course of action and might en enact the sort of uh, policies that would uh, at least diminish the, the amount of deaths and injuries that uh, Ethiopians incur in Lebanon. Um, however, what happened, uh, unfortunately, did not turn out that way. What happened was that in December, when uh, the Ethiopian Foreign Ministry's fact-finding delegation uh, finally did tra travel to Beirut, at, um, at a meeting that it had with members of the community and domestic workers in Beirut, um, it instead told those gathered, and by it I should, I should mention the names, uh, the, the Ethiopian Foreign Ministry's uh, Director General for Middle Eastern Affairs, his name is Shamebo Fitamu. So he was in Beirut and he told those gathered that they had to stop communicating with press, with journalists, because uh, the more they did, uh, the, the more they would, uh, and the way he put it, if I would, if I would translate it to, um, from Amharic to English, um, I guess, well, the easy way to say is they were tarnishing their country's reputation this way. And he singled out my outlets, as well as Open Democracy, which also published some of my work, and he singled these outlets and he singled me out and he, he uh, urged those there to stop communicating with these outlets. And he went as far as threatening to sue me. And he warned those there that he was aware of who in Lebanon was communicating with me. So th this was recorded by a member of the community who passed it on to me. So, and that's how I was able to be aware of it. But it was clear to me from that point on that the Ethiopian government was not intent on on taking measures that would uh, curb the problem. Instead, it just wanted to uh, sort of return to the uh, pre-2019 era where deaths of, of uh, Ethiopian domestic workers in, Le in Lebanon barely made headlines and where the Ethiopian government could and consulate members could get away with virtually anything, where they could act with impunity and not have to uh, deal with uh, inquiring members of the press. So for me, this was very, very disappointing as a whole. And, and it, uh, it made me realize that um, we would have to really double our efforts. Members of the Ethiopian press would have to double their efforts if we are to see any sort of concrete change uh, in terms of uh, the institutional effort to safeguard the dignity of Ethiopian domestic workers in Lebanon. The um, Filipino embassy in Lebanon, the Filipino government uh, said that it would cover the costs of uh, Filipino workers in Lebanon, domestic workers in Lebanon, most of whom are also women. Um, if they want to go back to, to the Philippines, for example, they would cover their costs. My understanding is that there's no equivalent plan uh, as far as the Ethiopian government is concerned, correct? Yes, you are correct. Um, so what we have here, since the uh, Lebanese revolution and Lebanon's economic downturn, um, 
the embassies and consulates and various diplomatic missions have been working around the clock to evacuate their citizens, among them primarily the Philippines, um, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and several others. And uh, we must we must uh, add here that Ethiopian domestic workers are the lowest paid amongst domestic workers in Lebanon, due to the fact that there is there are no um, there are no uh, government representatives lobbying for their rights and due to the fact that they are generally neglected. Uh, there has been no one to argue on their behalf to to uh, improve their conditions at all, which has not been the case with uh, the Philippines and with uh, other communities in Lebanon. So what you've seen is because of the uh, sort of cutthroat approach that the embassy, the embassy of the Philippines has had, you've seen a very gradual improvement of the condition of Filipino domestic workers who can now almost demand a minimum salary and even abusive Lebanese employers are less likely to inflict uh, abuse upon them because they are aware that doing so might uh, uh, you know, might turn into a, a diplomatic incident even. Whereas amongst Ethiopians, since this doesn't exist, the prevailing belief is that you can do anything to an Ethiopian and nothing will happen. So we are already the lowest earning, Ethiopian domestic workers are already the lowest earning uh, demographic amongst um, domestic workers in Lebanon. They form the majority of domestic workers in Lebanon. They are 80%, I believe 77% was the number that Amnesty International uh, put out in a report two years ago. 77% of domestic workers in Lebanon are Ethiopian and they are the lowest paid. They can earn as low as $150 a month, whereas domestic workers from other uh, countries can command as much as 250 300 US dollars a month, which, uh, you know, for domestic workers uh, makes all the difference. So the Ethiopian, the Ethiopian government, as you mentioned, the Ethiopian uh, consulate has not taken any uh, considerable measures to uh, evacuate its citizens from the country. Uh, it has only decided to assist those who were able to pay a 550 US dollar fee. So those who, may, who were able to pay that fee would then be placed on a waiting list and some would wait as much as five, six, seven months before finally being uh, jetted back to Ethiopia. So what you need to realize is, as the, the value of Lebanese currency plummeted, as uh, foreign exchange, as um, foreign currency almost dissipated and evaporated in Lebanon, uh, for the Ethiopian consulate to demand 550 US dollars, not even its equivalent in lira, they demanded US dollars from the lowest paid domestic workers seeking evacuation. I mean, those who were truly in need of being evacuated have not been evacuated. It has literally been the, uh, I mean, you're not gonna say the privilege because it's, there is no real privilege being an Ethiopian domestic worker in Lebanon, but those who were slightly better off than some of their uh, kin were the ones who were able to get out. And even then, they, after waiting five, six, seven months, and right now, um, the most vulnerable, the, um, the most endangered of Ethiopian domestic workers were not able to get out of the country and they were not evacuated because they could not afford the exorbitant fee demanded of them by the consulate. So they remain in Lebanon where if it continues like this, they will, there will be a humanitarian crisis uh, because a lot of these domestic workers 
no longer have uh, savings. A lot of their savings uh, disappeared over the course of the past few months with uh, layoffs and uh, uh, the economic crisis. So they're now struggling to just be able to put food on the table and cover rent costs. A lot of them already have already been evicted from their homes. A lot of them are, a lot of them are uh, begging. And I believe it was CNN that uh, spoke to a woman who said that some are even being forced into prostitution. And despite this, uh, the Ethiopian, Ethiopia's foreign ministry, uh, the Ethiopian foreign minister himself, uh, Geduan Dargacho, that's his name, he was on, he addressed, he addressed the issues of Ethiopian migrants uh, pleading to be evacuated in a, in, a, in, a, in a national address on the state broadcaster. And he said, due to our inability to... Uh, to quarantine the large number of migrants that would be coming from countries like Lebanon, uh, they're going to have to just patiently wait. So that's, I mean, that's extremely demoralizing if you are, if you have been in Lebanon without a job, with virtually no money for the past eight months, barely able able to uh, eat. Uh, I mean, to be told by your your leaders that um, you know you're going to have to wait. Is if that if that wasn't bad enough, you have uh, the the man I mentioned earlier, the man who had traveled to uh, Beirut, Ethiopia's uh, foreign ministry envoy, to the Middle East, Fitamu Shamiwo Fitamu, who actually went out and said, "Look, you um, Ethiopians in Lebanon being repatriated en masse would endanger the well-being of 110 million people in Ethiopia," which sort of uh, devalues these people, like renders them less human or less of a citizen than the rest of the country. It's shocking and quite frankly as an Ethiopian it's embarrassing that our own leaders who are you know <laughs> their taxpayer their taxpayer uh, maintained leaders are uh, resorting to the, using this sort of dehumanizing degrading rhetoric and language to describe our own fellow citizens our own fellow citizens in their time of need. As you mentioned, you um, started investigating essentially early last year. Um, as it happens, obviously, since then, quite a lot of things have uh, been happening in Lebanon, the, the uprising in, in October, and since then, the ons and off on that front, and obviously the parallel economic uh, crisis, which started before October, but definitely took a downward um, turn uh, since then as well. At the same time, so this is the very obvious negative uh, component of it, especially uh, as far as domestic migrant domestic workers are concerned. At the same time, as you mentioned, it seems there seems to be a bit more attention on this particular issue. Uh, Timur Azhari, you mentioned him. Uh, he he does he should definitely he deserves a lot of credit for this uh, due to his tireless work initially at the Daily Star and then uh, now with Al Jazeera. And it does seem that the only thing really, especially, I mean, at, at least right now, in absence of a very organized migrant domestic workers movement in Lebanon, which has been trying to see the light in a sense for almost a decade now, but has been, well, the migrant domestic workers union has been uh, literally uh, simply not recognized by the government uh, using very dubious methods or reasonings um, to limit this, um, well, this organizational power, because at the end of the day, we are talking about hundreds of thousands of migrant domestic workers in a country that's five to six million only. 
And if, if you know, in this ideal scenario, they all decided to strike at the same time, the whole country can come to a halt. And um, which, which would obviously force the hand of the government to do something about what's happening. Given that that's not happening and, you know, realistically might not happen anytime soon, the next best thing, um, in my opinion, and I mean, I would assume that you agree, is basically this kind of media uh, attention, this kind of media pressure. So absolutely from where i'm coming from in a sense is if there are ways for uh, lebanese activists and uh, journalists to essentially team up uh kind of like uh, this episode in a sense team up with ethiopian journalists and activists and indeed you know obviously journalists and activists from other nationalities uh, that are affected by by the situation the kafala system in lebanon that is really like objectively not just as you know, me as an activist hoping that this might be the case. This is what we're actually seeing. Like Timur Asari's reporting has actually forced the hand of the labor ministry in Lebanon to to do some investigation, which is something that myself, you know, as someone who um, I've, I've been more or less involved in, in this abolition, I mean, this movement to abolish the kafala system for almost a decade now, this is really some of the first signs that we're seeing that this might actually happen. It's very small. It's like barely enough to have hope that this can can change things for the better. But it's really the only thing that we have right now. And I wanted to ask you um, basically like it. Yeah. To segue from this to asking you in a sense, like if you were able, you as an Ethiopian journalist, if you were able to address many more Lebanese citizens uh, than you've managed so far through your writing and everything. So hopefully with this podcast, hopefully with more stuff in the future, I don't know. But what would you want them to know specifically about how Ethiopian citizens are affected by the kafala system in Lebanon? You already mentioned um, the background, the fact that they obviously come from lower uh, socioeconomic status. I, I honestly wouldn't be surprised if even that is news to uh, many Lebanese because really the, the the knowledge of Ethiopia and Lebanon and for that matter the Philippines, uh, Sri Lanka and the other countries affected is really minimal and like uh, pretty much non-existent uh, even though as we know there is a direct flight between Addis Ababa and Beirut this tends to be <laughs> almost explicitly uh, to pump in this the workforce to, to maintain this kafala system so yeah, what what would be some of the things that you would assume, you, like, just imagine that you have this large podium and are, are able to address as many Lebanese people as possible. What would you want them to know about how the kafala system is actually affecting Ethiopian citizens? Okay, well, I mean, as you mentioned, I think uh, we need to tip our hats off. I mean, Ethiopians would tip their hats off to our gallant Lebanese allies in this sense. A lot of the activists, a lot of the journalists, uh, who are uh, taking up the cause, who are who have taken notice of um, you know the ongoings in their homes in their neighborhoods and have decided to take a stand against it. I mean it's very commendable to uh, to look at the log in the eye of your own society of your own communities or so or so to say. Um, I'm eternally grateful for those who uh, who we I could count on for sources of information for a greater understanding on Lebanon, Lebanese society as a whole. I have uh, many people, you, Timur Azhari, and plenty more to thank for uh, for this. Uh, in terms of uh, 
what would uh, the next step of the struggle of sorts uh, be? I would agree with you in in that um, there has to be there has to be sort of <laughs> bilateral cooperation of or, of sorts between Lebanon and Ethiopia in terms of uh, media and activists and uh, human rights campaigners because it's sad to say but this is the only way we've been able to um, uh, see the the minimal progress that we've been able to see in recent years. Uh, you mentioned that there has been uh, discussions and uh, talking in Lebanon amongst Lebanese about um, about finally doing away with uh, the kafala system about uh, um, finding alternatives to what is essentially uh, a stain on the on uh, Lebanon as a whole. Uh, I think obviously we'd have to continue with this. Uh, at the same time, I would also have to point a finger at Ethiopian society for its. Uh, I mean, we need to realize that this is a twenty-five-year-old problem. Ethiopians mm -hmm. have been dying with regularity in Lebanon since I believe nineteen ninety-five or nineteen ninety-six. And it, the numbers, uh, the death toll, the annual death toll has only increased. There has been no slowing in, uh, of, of the rate of deaths, suicide, and cases of abuse of Ethiopians um, in Lebanon. I think Ethiopia as a whole, due to the fact that uh, we've had something like 30 years of uh, the same authoritarian regime in power, there was sort of a sense of helplessness that we could not change anything that we were unable to uh, eff affect any sort of uh, institutional change. But I believe that myth has been debunked since Ethiopia was able to do away with, with the previous administration via national uprisings in 2015 and 2016. They are what gave away to the, uh, to the ascension of uh, reform, uh, of uh, refor the new post-2018 reform era government. Of course, a lot remains to be uh, desired, but that's another topic. But Ethiopian society as a whole needs to realize that um, uh, the more uh, the more of a sort of um, the more we are able to to uh, grab the initiative, because right now the impetus is with the domestic workers. The impetus is with those calling for the system, the kafala system, to be abolished. So the more we we the more we. Uh, condemn the government's practices, the more we take a hands-on approach to uh, solving the issues that have led to uh, two domestic workers dying every week in Lebanon, uh, the more likely we are to usher in change. I mean, uh, we were only, in terms of the Ethiopian press, we were very few working on this issue into 2019, but we did manage to uh, put an end to uh, a consular policy in uh, September 2019 which which had forbid Ethiopians from heading in person to the consulate uh, and ple and pleading for intervention uh, on behalf of uh, a victim of abuse prior to uh, the press getting involved an Ethiopian would have to get would have to file a case with the foreign ministry in Addis Ababa which was a lengthy bureaucratic process which was uh, set up with the intention of uh, having the consulate wash its hands of all duties this uh, discriminatory policy was uh, was uh, uh, cast away due to pressure uh, pressure on the government that was uh, that came as a result of uh, ample press coverage. So this was one small victory 
uh, and it could and there could be more victories and more giant leaps for Ethiopian kind in this battle against the kafala system if uh, Ethiopian media and, and Ethiopian activists alongside their counterparts in Lebanon there are many uh, there are many counterparts in Lebanon uh, collaborate so that more people and uh, uh, a, a global audience of sorts can really uh, can really see what uh, what has been confined to uh, the uh, <laughs> the bedrooms of where these uh, women are unfortunately locked in so often in Lebanon for Lebanese for Lebanon as a whole what I would have to say is I mean Lebanese society in many ways uh, there's there's always a progressive element of sorts if you if you if you uh, compare it with a lot of the other regional players and with especially with the uh, some of the states in the Middle East um, I mean you see uh, you see a, a, an attempt to create some sort of national cohesion between varying peoples ethnicities religious groups in Lebanon and in government whether or not it succeeded I'm not really the proper person to speak of on that but there is that effort whereas elsewhere in the middle in the Middle East and especially in the Gulf countries you will you will notice uh, one powerful uh, sect dominating others uh, this has uh, there in Lebanon there's a there has been a serious attempt at uh, preventing this from happening so in this sense along with the secularism and the relative freedom of worship it's taking in of uh, large numbers of refugees there there is a, a foundation to build upon uh, there is there are lots of things that are commendable about Lebanon as a whole lots of progressive elements but the fact is it's the unwillingness to uh, the institutional unwillingness to address the endless woes of domestic workers it's a it's a black mark it's a massive stain on the, the country's general reputation and thanks to the collective effort by members of the press by activists um, it will not go away this will not be shoved under the rug um, this is the era of social media and the cries of the these women whether we like it or not they will not be confi confined to the homes of their employers they will be like the revolution will be <laughs> tweeted televised or so to say so i would say i would urge lebanese i mean there's there are obviously many progressive uh, lebanese allies as i as i've mentioned repeatedly but uh, maybe I'm mistaken, but they, I've, I don't know, I feel that they tend to be on the periphery, sort of fringe elements of Lebanese society, which is sort of disappointing. I think Lebanon, Lebanese, the Lebanese people as a whole would have to look at what their national standing uh, on the global scale uh, looks like uh, while maintaining the kafala system. And I would like to see the voices uh, calling for reform and the eventual abolition of the kafala system become louder in Lebanon and uh, I hope that um, it's a voice it's it's a call that is adopted by a much larger section of the population than what there is now yeah yeah absolutely uh, there, uh, and I agree that this has not yet become um, mainstream so to speak the only time really I was uh, <clears throat> excuse me I was uh, on the streets the next day as soon as the October protest started so between October 18th and roughly mid-February or so, I could only count maybe a couple of protests that um, mentioned the kafala system and mentioned the kafala mm -hmm. system to emphasize, not that it was the main uh, topic of the protest. And these have been so far mainly 
uh, feminists in Lebanon because of the the, the politics of intersectionality uh, um, uh-huh. would be my interpretation of it. So you would have a few, for example, there was a feminist march. I can't remember when now exactly, but I took part in it. And they had a number of signs uh, with messages along the lines of, uh, for example, um, we are thinking about the migrant domestic workers who could not be with us or something like this because of the widespread knowledge. This is not something that's hidden in that sense that uh, essentially if they could go out, uh, they can only do so on a Sunday uh, wow. for the most part in any case. And as we know, unfortunately, even that uh, many women don't even have. Um, uh-huh. You mentioned, and if it's okay, it's um, a bit not really off topic, but it's not uh, something that I, I was thinking of asking before. But you just mentioned that. Uh, can you talk a bit, um, as much as you can, about these protests that you mentioned? I think in twenty fifteen and twenty sixteen, because um, that's around the same time that Lebanon had a, as well a big protest movement in the summer of twenty fifteen. And I would be very curious if you can just uh, talk a bit about them, uh, like what were they about, um, just as a, as a matter of kind of like an open question for me to maybe later on see if I can uh, have folks uh, communicate from Lebanon and Ethiopia um, on, you know, parallel protest movements and how to link them up theoretically. Okay, so as I mentioned, uh, Ethiopia from um, 1991 to 2018, it was the, it was the same a uh, collection of uh, ruling party elites that controlled the government and monopolized much of Ethiopia's security and political sectors. And what happened is that uh, things over the course of that 27 period uh, deteriorated and uh, that the 27 year period can be characterized as one where an authoritarian uh, government reigned supreme and uh, dissenting voices, opposition voices, were clamped down upon. Uh, Ethiopia, prior to 2018, was one of the world's top jailers of journalists. Mm. And uh, I know of many friends who spent a year, two years longer in prison for either content that was writing content that was critical of the government or for posting the wrong things about the government on, on Facebook. This was what, this was the reality of the 27 year period while I was uh, while um, well while <laughs> it's a year it's a uh, it's the uh, time period that I grew up that I spent in the country as well mm-hmm. so uh, what happened what eventually push came to shove and uh, people had enough very similar to what uh, we've seen in Sudan and in Algeria over the past uh, year two mm-hmm. years it was starting from 2015 that uh, uh, the, f- the first batch of protests known as the Oromo protests, that's the, because they started in Oromia, which is the largest region in the country. Mm-hmm. Pro- uh, anti-government protests that had started there engulfed and erupted uh, across the country. And uh, over the course of 2015 and 2016, these protests were uh, violently, violently clamped down upon and in that time period, there was something like a thousand deaths of innocent unarmed protesters due to the authoritarian regime feeling that it could uh, crush the uprisings and restore its stronghold on power. So it was, uh, the protesters had plenty of questions, but uh, the obvious one, the, the, the obvious one linking every protester was the lack of basic freedoms. Um, my own outlet, Ethio- uh, my own Ethiopian uh, journalist outlet, Adi Standard, was 
forced to close in 2016 as a result of uh, uh, the protests intensifying and the government measures meant to um, meant to uh, muzzle uh, voices and independent reporting. So what happened was that the longer the protests went on, the government uh, realized that it was unable to uh, maintain uh, what it had maintained for 27 years. So uh, an era of reform or of sorts was ushered in, and it is what uh, brought in the ascension of uh, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed in 2018. And with his coming to power in 2018, uh, most of the journalists and activists and political prisoners, who numbered in the tens of thousands, were released from prison, and independent outlets that were forced into exile were allowed back in. And there is, um, I mean, there is a, there was a, especially in the initial months, there was a very promising uh, period of freedom where many thought that we could actually, uh, we we could actually uh, raise the standards. Uh, that Ethiopians had had in terms of uh, basic freedoms, in terms of uh, being able to exercise the freedom of speech, which was uh, the main pretext for uh, arrest for 27 years, and that's what uh, that's what uh, in, that was part of what uh, garnered uh, the prime minister the uh, the votes to uh, win the 2019 Nobel Peace Prize. So that's uh, that's. Of course, it's been two years since, and there there are lots of uh, shortcomings with the current government. Uh, they would be too long to go in detail, but uh, we do we are allowed to operate somewhat. Journalists are allowed to operate in the country at, uh, with uh, a lot less restrictions compared to the pre two thousand and eighteen era, and we are only able to uh, dissect the problem of domestic workers in Lebanon, and we are only able to criticize the institutional failings of the government and the consulate uh, to this degree due to uh, some of the changes that were able, that were brought on as a result of the protests. I see. Well, Zakaria, um, this has been really, really informative. Thank you a lot for this. Is there anything that um, you, you, you want to expand upon or you thought that, you know, I forgot to ask or anything like that? Um, no, I mean, I mean, I am a journalist, so I'm supposed to be, we're, I mean, journalists are not supposed to take sides or anything like that. Uh, I'll make, I'll be very brief. So we're supposed to be a sort of neutral parties and it's the activists who have all the, the, the rights to be one-sided or whatever. But I mean, in terms of the kafala system, I don't think there are two sides. It's, uh, it's, if the humanitarian in anyone would point someone towards, uh, the, towards this taking a towards supporting the campaign to abolish it in Lebanon and elsewhere in the Middle East so journalist activist uh, whoever you are lawmaker or uh, just about anyone with uh, a remote uh, with remote knowledge of what it is to work as a migrant in the Middle East would uh, would take the side of the of those calling for its abolition so uh, I'm hoping that I mean we're not supposed to we're not supposed to be taking part in a struggle as journalists but it is a it is a struggle this is one of the very few struggles around the world that would see uh, activists and journalists fight uh, alongside each other I would say so uh, aluta continua absolutely thank you a lot for your time really it's my pleasure 